Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. For those of you who are missing Christmas as much as I am already, we'll, we'll trip back just a couple weeks. No, welcome. Good morning. We're so glad you're here. Whether you're joining us here in the room or joining online, and, and there's a reason we're starting with the Grinch, that classic scene. And, and I love the animated one of the Grinch because when he actually you know has this revelation, his face turns into a big heart. I absolutely love that. Uh, but but I love all the versions of the Grinch where it says he puzzled and puzzed till his puzzler was sore. Do you remember what he was puzzling about? Why did Christmas come? He'd stolen all the stuff, right? He was trying to keep the Who's down in Whoville from celebrating. So he stole all the food and he stole all the presents and he stole all the decorations and Christmas still came. And the reason he knows that it came is because they all got together. They all came out and they all held hands and they stood in that circle and they sang. And and this is where I I probably start to read more things into stuff because I I tend to think of this big picture theological view. So I might be picking up something that Dr. Seuss wasn't putting down. But but I, I see relationship. I see these people not devastated by losing stuff. They come together. They hold hands. They're enjoying being together. Now, we studied this not too long ago. We, we had this in our Advent series and the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. We saw that we, right, people are the reason for the season. God came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? To be God with us because he wanted to have a relationship with us. He wants to make the way where we can be in relationship with him forever. And so he came down, he was crucified, he was resurrected, he ascended to go and prepare the place where all Christ followers everywhere will get to spend eternity with him. And while he is working on that task up there, here we are on earth. And once we've declared that relationship with him, once we've professed faith in Jesus, what do we get to do? We get to practice that relationship with one another. So we have to have our vertical relationship with God right. That's got to come first. And then we get to work on horizontal relationships. One another is huge in the Bible. We're instructed so many times we're supposed to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another, accept one another, have peace with one another. There's over a hundred one another references in the New Testament. They deal specifically with 59 commands that we're supposed to do with one another. It's a big deal. Relationships really matter. So today we're going to launch kind of a quick three-week series that's going to intentionally focus on our purpose and mission and vision that we believe God has given us here at Orchards Community Church. And we're doing this to prepare us for our upcoming annual meeting. We have it once a year. That's why they call it annual. It's kind of a state of the church address, right? It's going to happen on Monday night, January 23rd, right here in the worship center. Everyone is welcome to attend. Please don't feel you're not welcome to attend. If you want to vote on our ministry council members, you need to be a member of the church. So if you think this is your home church, if you feel like this is where God wants you, and you haven't officially become a member yet, come talk to me about that or talk to one of the ministry council people after the service or in the coming days. So we'll take care of that for you. But we're going to spend the next three weeks talking about these things. Today, I'm going to talk about our purpose as a church. Next week, Brenton's going to talk about our church mission. In two weeks, Andrew's going to talk about our vision. 
And then we're going to have that annual meeting on Monday. And then right after that on Wednesday, I'm going to have some knee surgery and I'll be on crutches till Easter. I'm just trying to warn you guys, just so you know ahead of time, right? Sounds like fun. And I should be back, you know, barring the amount of pain I'm in. And for the last weekend in January, we're going to have one of our children's and family services. I love those. If you've had the opportunity, last year was the first year we did that. We kind of do it every month that has a fifth Sunday. And we involve kids, we involve families right here. And it's a great, great thing. So save the date for that. That'll take us into February. We're going to launch a study we're very excited about. Started talking about this last year. We're going to walk through Luke's sequel to the gospel. We walked through Luke's gospel for a couple of years. We're going to walk through the Acts of the Apostles. So there's as much save the date stuff as I can give you. Well, today, let's talk about our church statements, okay? For many of you, this will be a review. But as a church, we have a purpose. Everybody should have a purpose, Dictionary defines purpose as the reason why we exist. So we should have one of those. We should be able to articulate what it is. What's our purpose? If somebody would ask us. Did, did you hear about the guy? He went shopping and he was going to a bookstore looking for something in particular. And he went to one of those huge bookstores like the Barnes and Noble sized bookstores. And, and so he's wandering around. And he didn't find the thing he's looking for. And he finally wanders up to the counter and there's somebody there. And he asked the clerk, can you tell me where the self-help section is? And the clerk says, I could, but that would defeat the purpose. Because he was looking for self-help, right? We, we get this, right? Our purpose is why we were created. And so for certain, all churches should have one. And I think, honestly, all Bible-believing churches should have pretty similar ones. They should be statements based on the things that we saw Jesus do when he came down to the planet and that we want to do since he's gone, right? We want to be the body of Christ, and so you've heard us talk about this before. Our purpose here at OCC is to help people become relationally connected. We want folks to join classes and groups and be in rooted studies and, and take advantage of opportunities to serve in the church and the community because those things help people become relationally connected. They help us practice the one another's we see in Scripture. And so that's our purpose. And a good purpose statement should logically lead to mission and vision statements. Now, generally, for any organization, a good mission statement is just going to further define, further clarify what we're doing to achieve our purpose. I looked up a couple good ones. I'm kind of a mission statement geek. See if you can guess who this one is. It's to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. What does that sound like? That's Google, right? That's succinct, and I believe that's pretty accurate because we all do that. Whether we use Google or some other internet search engine, we search for things because we want to find information and make it useful. That one seems pretty solid to me, but, but a biblical mission statement should clarify why a local church exists. It should really define what and why we do what we do. Why do we want to focus on being relationally connected? And for us here at OCC, our simple mission statement is we want to make disciples who make disciples. I'll let Pastor Brenton get into all the details of that. But you see a reminder of that every week when you walk in the building. I don't know if you know it because we've kind of tried to do it subtly. But if you walk into the Connection Center, which is also named very intentionally, there's, there's four big posters up on the wall there. You remember those posters? It's these four chairs that we practice. Those are about making disciples who make disciples. We want to find people in that first chair, in the lost chair, and help them move to the next chair, the believer chair. We want to find people who are in that believer chair and help them move to the next chair, to the worker chair where they're engaged. We want to find people in the worker chair and help them move to being a disciple maker because then they can circle back around to any of the chairs. 
And that's not us doing the work. That's God making disciples, but we want to join in. It's a beautiful, beautiful model, and it honestly leads to our vision. Vision is fun to me. Vision is supposed to be a picture of the future that produces passion right now, produces passion in the present. Our vision is a picture of where we should be in the future if we follow our purpose and our mission. And so good vision statements should be both inspirational and aspirational. They should inspire us, right? And then we should aspire to do the things it'll take to accomplish those things. And our our aspirational statement says we want people to be changed and different. Why? Because we joined in to where God is at work. That's our vision statement. We just want to join God where he's working. So I'll let Pastor Andrew unpack all that. But, But the whole idea is that we would all do that. Everyone would engage. Every person here at OCC would desire to join God where he's at work as he's moving people from chair to chair to chair. That'd be phenomenal. God can accomplish that. But knowing our purpose and our mission and our vision should really just then give us a guide, should give us a good roadmap for what things we believe are important in the church and what steps we'll take to accomplish those as we seek to join God on this purpose, mission, and vision to bring him the glory he's worthy of. If we knew, right, what would bring God glory, but we didn't have any steps to take to to reach that, it it always strikes me as a picture like bringing God glory is a big pinata, but we're all blindfolded and we're just swinging blindly. No, that's not the picture at all. A church without a biblical purpose, mission, and vision statement always reminds me of the great conversation between Alice and the Cheshire Cat and Alice in Wonderland, if you remember that story. I love it, and I'll remind you. Alice meets the cat and says, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And you remember what the cat responds? Well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice said, well, I don't much care where. And the cat said, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. (laughs) Isn't that true? We're so blessed here at OCC. We know which way we want to go. We want to purposefully focus on healthy relationships. First with God and then practice them with one another. We want to engage in making disciples who make disciples. And we want to do that until Jesus comes back. Because we strongly desire to join him in this amazing, transformational, miraculous work. Because he alone can save. He alone sanctifies his followers. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What do healthy, thriving biblical relationships look like? Because if we ask the question... Honestly, what what do you want most in life? I think relationships would normally score pretty high, but for whatever reason, we think about other stuff first. And I wonder if we would really evaluate it, if we might bring those other things down a notch and elevate relationships. Because like we talk about, well, gosh, I'd love to have a lot of money, but would we love to have a lot of money and be all alone? Having a lot of money and having our own super yacht or having our own private island, that's not really that exciting when we're alone. And so that one starts to come down the list. We elevate relationships. I've been thinking about this one a ton because I've been struggling with back and knee pain for quite some time. And if I made a wish list for things that I would love to have, good physical health would be high on the list. But if I had good physical health and I was all alone, would I truly enjoy my good health? Christine and I were doing a a devotional together over Christmas. and, And one of the nights, basically this was the question, something to the extent of what do you wish for in your life? And, and my beautiful wife said this. She said, I, <laughs> she said, I want you to have a body that doesn't hurt all the time. 
And at that moment, something flew in my eye and I started crying. It was so weird. Because even though my body still hurt just as much as it did when we started the devotional, my relationship was healthy. Healthy relationships. I don't know if we've thought of it this way before. The Bible ranks healthy relationships as one of the most important things in this life. Do we realize that? I know this because Scripture tells us in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a Jewish religious expert, and he comes up, he wants to test Jesus. He's going to grill him, so he asks him this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You remember what Jesus' answer was? I think we all know this one. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the great and first commandment, but look at verse 39. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So see, a loving relationship with God is of first importance, but then loving relationship with others is second. Literally, the whole Bible is about these two important relationships. And because God's word is so clear about this priority, it becomes even sadder that we know so many people who struggle, so many people who suffer with hurting and broken relationships. And, and we get it, and we talk about many things, divorce and prodigal children, and, and we live in a place where we have hostile work environments. We, we get all those, but this happens in the church too. There are literally people who bounce from local church to local church, not because they're following a divine call from God, right? Not even because of a theological difference or a doctrinal difference. No, they jump from church to church because in that church, somebody said something mean to me. In that church, I, I was trying to speak the truth and love to somebody, but it lacked context. Now, somebody's mad at me. And, and so they bounce from church to church. Instead of investing in communication, instead of investing in good relationships, they just pick up and leave where that same thing is going to happen again <laughs> until they learn how to do this, until we invest in healthy relationships. If only the Bible said something about it. Wait, it does. In this passage we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul actually gives us the cheat code. If we follow these practices, honestly, it's going to be like having the answers for the test. So if you have your Bible, grab it. Join me in the book of Colossians. Now, I want to address one thing right up front because some of you are already thinking this. Hey, Pastor James, if we're talking about investing in healthy relationships, doesn't that outcome involve another person as well? And the answer there is yes. I mean, that much is true. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes this, If possible, you ready? So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the reality is we can only control one side of this equation. And truly, no matter what we do, sometimes, no matter how hard we try, some people don't want to engage relationally. Amen? And that part's sad to me. But, but that doesn't stop us from doing our part. And maybe, just maybe, if we follow the prescription that we see here in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14, then we might be able to join in with God as he transforms somebody's life. That'd be a huge blessing. Now, let me add this, because we don't have time to look at all the context around this. But, but to get to this spot in the text, Paul's already instructed the church in Colossae to do something super hard. He's already told them they have to die to themselves. He says, you need to put off some things. You need to lay aside some things. And he lists them. Immorality, impurity, evil desire, greed, anger, malice, slander, lying. As Christ followers, he says, put off those things. Why? Because God has something much better for us to put on. <laughs> he wants us to clothe ourselves with. Join me in the text here if you don't have it with you. 
Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. How? As the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. And verse 14 kind of sums it up. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, we already, we already looked at the great commandments. We understand love is the thing we're supposed to put on. So, so let's focus instead on these other things that Paul mentions. But before we begin, we have to acknowledge how God addresses these people. Because it's honestly how he addresses Christ followers today. Did you see what he called them? Chosen, holy, and beloved. What do those terms mean? Well, chosen is pretty simple, honestly. It just means God chose us first. We didn't choose him first. Big theological term called predestination or election. But that, that simply means we can't do anything to earn our relationship with God. He calls us to that relationship. And then the other adjectives, honestly, then just describe being chosen by God. The text says we're holy. The text says we're beloved. Holy means we're set apart. We're separate from this fallen world. And beloved is beautiful. It means we are special objects of God's love. I have a couple friends who call their wives all the time. Their, their pet name for them is beloved. And only their wives, right? Because that's such a special term. It means my wife is set apart. I've chosen her. It's a precious term. So the question becomes, why does the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to use those words? Chosen, holy, and beloved. When what he's really going to talk about is healthy relationships. Well, I think there's one super practical, very big reason, and it's because that's hard to do. It's not easy to do the things Paul is getting ready to tell these folks. Dying to ourselves is always hard. Living for Christ is clearly the most abundant way we can go through life, but it's tough. It's the long game, right? And a lot of times we're looking for shortcuts. So this notion of putting off idolatry and greed and our evil desires to instead put on love, that's a big task. It's going to be much easier to get motivated about that difficult task when we remember God loves us. God chose us. And he did that when we were not lovely. <laughs> he did that when we were tough to choose, right? He chose us when we were his enemies. He chose us when we were mired in sin. Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us how? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So church, when we see ourselves the way God sees us, when we remember how he treated us, he died for us, then we remember that's the model for how we're supposed to treat others. And now this notion of dying to ourselves becomes real. And we can recognize that the way we treat others, even those who are hard to love, should reflect the way God treats us, his chosen holy, beloved family. So if we can grasp the way God sees us, then I think we can begin to live these one another's. We can treat people with the qualities that God lists in this passage. If you grab your outline, there's five things we are supposed to put on in verse 12 as we bear with one another and forgive one another in verse 13. These are the practices we need to engage in so we can demonstrate these qualities. We need to ask ourselves that question. Am I, am I living these qualities day in and day out? And that's going to look different for every Christ follower, okay? I mean, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, but we're not all alike. 
We have unique styles, unique personalities that will influence how we demonstrate these qualities. But ultimately, we need to recognize Jesus modeled every one of these for us. If we've read his love letter to us, we know he's compassionate. We know he's kind. That's a no-brainer. He's humble. He's gentle. He's patient. He's the gold standard for us and how we're supposed to bear with one another. He's the gold standard for how we're supposed to forgive one another. He's the model, and the question becomes, are we going to follow his example? So let's walk through these one by one as we practically think about where we can apply this lesson. Can we apply this at the end of the service today out in the Connection Center? Can we apply this when we begin a rooted study this semester? Can we apply this, honestly, when we're standing at the mailbox chatting with our neighbor? When we're standing in the, in the line at Winco chatting with the clerk? How do we do these things? First on your outline, how do we demonstrate compassion? It's a tough word. In the Greek, it's this word splanknidzomahi, and it literally means, this is kind of gross, the bowels of mercy, the bowels of sympathy. Is that where we think about pouring out compassion from our bowels? Let's not think about that. <laughs> it's kind of gross. So Paul actually uses a different word here. He says we have a heart, right? We have a heart of compassion. Well, what's that saying? This concerns our emotions. And we get that when we talk about this, because what do we say? We're moved to compassion. This is about our feelings when we're touched by someone's circumstances and we respond by reaching out to them. Splanknidzomahi. It's the word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 10 where he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that guy? Guy gets beaten, left half for dead, and the Good Samaritan comes along and he has splanknidzomahi. He's moved by compassion to reach out and care for this guy. Same word again a few chapters later in the parable of the prodigal son. That wayward son comes home, and, and as we sang in the song, what does the father do? He has splanknidzomahi. He has compassion, and so he moves towards that wayward boy. Over and over in Scripture, Jesus modeled this, and it's always in relationships. And it's always because he has care for others as his motivation. And he went around and, and displayed this so many times, and often intentionally for the disciples. He wanted them to see. So he'd display this splanknidzomahi, and then the disciples would come along and go, get that person out of here. Send them away. They didn't have splanknidzomahi. Why? Because they didn't see people the way Jesus did. And often when we lack compassion today, it's for the same reason. We don't see people the way Jesus does. So church, if we're going to invest in healthy relationships, we got to put on compassion. Number two, Paul says we should put on kindness. This is a neat word. Literally from the Bible, it means to be free from things that are harsh or rough or bitter. It's the Greek word krestotes. It's also used in the Bible to describe wine that had mellowed. I'm not a wine drinker. But, but, but it's wine that's no longer harsh, right? That's what kind people are. They're not harsh, Kind people are not demanding. Kind people offer loads and loads of grace. Bless you. Grace. <laughs> Jesus, as always, is our example of kindness. But there's another biblical character I love who I think really displays this in spades. And it's a man named Joseph. Joseph, who is the son of Jacob. Joseph from the account in the book of Genesis. If you know his story, man, it is soap opera stuff, right? Joseph has brothers who hated him. And they sold him into slavery. And Joseph gets 
dropped in a pit and he makes it out of that frying pan but he lands in the fire. He winds up at Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife accuses him of something. He gets thrown in jail and he thinks he's going to get out of that and he get his dream job and that doesn't work out the way he thought. And so he goes through all these things and he winds up being honestly the second in command in all of Egypt. Joseph winds up being the prime minister of Egypt and in this lofty position, man, he could have thrown that weight around if he wanted to. He could have had those brothers who threw him in the pit tortured or tormented or worse, right? But he didn't do it. Didn't do it. And in the midst of even more trials, there's a severe famine. And then Jacob dies, his dad dies. Joseph displays kindness to his brothers. They come to him begging, and he's not harsh or rough. Instead, he weeps with his brothers. He displays this great love, this care, this concern, not only for them, but also their families. Joseph's a phenomenal example of kindness in relationships, but let's be honest, it's one that's hard to follow because Joseph's brothers were not good guys. They were bad guys. They didn't mean any good for Joseph. Scripture tells us they desired evil for him, and yet he repaid kindness to them. Sound impossible? It's pretty tough, but nothing is impossible for God. This is honestly how God desires for all of his followers to exist in relationship. We know this because of Jesus' words. This is Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward's going to be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind. To who? To the ungrateful and evil. That's so hard. But the reality is an act of kindness like that, when there's someone who deserves evil and instead we show them kindness, that could be the thing that God would use to draw that person into a relationship with himself. That'd be a phenomenal attribute. And when we do that, I think people recognize that comes from a place beyond anything we could accomplish on our own. Can we be kind to others? I love the story of a guy who was a Christ follower, and he was in the Olympics. This was a long time ago, 1964 Olympics. There was an Italian bobsledder. His name was Eugenio Matti. And, and Eugenio Matti, with only one person left to compete in the bobsled, was going to win the gold medal. He was leading the race. Had one competitor left to compete, a guy from Great Britain named Tony Nash. And Nash is pushing his bobsled up to the top of the run, and as he's doing it, he discovers there's a bolt there's a very critical bolt that holds the two pieces of the bobsled together, and it's broken. And so it'd be impossibly dangerous for Tony Nash to compete. And do you know what Eugenio Mati did? He took a bolt out of his own bobsled and gave it to him. And Nash put this bolt in his bobsled and ran the course and beat Mati. He won the gold medal. Mati won the silver. But later that year, Mahdi won an award that was named after the founder of the Olympics. It's referred to as the Fair Play Award. It's an award for kindness. Church can ask a question in light of eternity. Is one of those awards more prestigious than the other? The gold medal or the award for kindness? Number three, Paul says we need to clothe ourselves with humility. Well, that's an easy one. <laughs> Wrong. We're proud people. We know that. Here in Colossians, Paul says we've got to put off that pride, put on humility. And this takes a weird turn in practicality because we have to be clear about this. A humble person can exhibit pride, but the pride needs to be in him. The pride needs to be in our relationship with God, not things we could accomplish on our own. 
Truly humble people are not self-sufficient. They're Christ-sufficient. They're weak in and of themselves. They're strong in the Lord. And this is a pattern that we see in virtually all these relationship builders. A humble person thinks of others before themselves. Paul explains it this way to the church that met in Philippi. He wrote this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I'm going to make this your homework for the week and you read the rest of this passage. Paul then points to our guy Jesus as the example for this type of humility. Because Jesus literally didn't think of himself. What did he do? He set aside his own glory so he could come to the earth and take on the form of a servant and go to the cross to pay the debt for our sins. That's humility. Jesus valued us. He esteemed the people he created highly, more highly than his own life. You see why we said this wasn't going to be easy. Helpful to remember we're Chosen, holy, and beloved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility. Next is gentleness. There's a great concept that Brenton talked about over Christmas. The King James translation calls this meekness. And we learned that meekness, true gentleness, doesn't mean weakness. It means having power that we keep under control. We have power that comes from God, but it's under his submission. The Greek philosopher Plato gives a really neat example of gentleness, which I'm going to live in real time here in a couple weeks. But Plato wrote about a gentle doctor back in his day who who would have to hurt a patient, like by resetting a broken bone or something. And, And so to do that, they'd use enough force, they'd hurt somebody enough to bring about healing. Trying to set a broken bone, the doctor could hurt somebody really, really bad, right? But they don't. They want to be gentle. They don't want to inflict pain. They want to bring healing. This procedure I'm having done on my knee is called a microfracture procedure. And basically what they do is they go in and they break the bones above and below my knee joint because it's supposed to, to grow cartilage. Good luck. Pray that the doctor is gentle is all, <laughs> all I can say. We are to put on gentleness in our relationships. These almost seem to be getting harder. Look at the last one, number five. We are to exhibit patience. Really, all you got to do is stand in church and say that word and people start to cringe. (laughs) It's a reminder enough that we struggle in this in our relationships. But if we're Christ followers, we already have this. We have patience as a fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we just need to demonstrate it. It's funny, the Greek word for patience literally translates as meaning long-tempered, which is the exact opposite of the problem most of us have with patience. We have a short fuse. I know I do short views when we're developing relationships. So those are the five attributes that Paul lists. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he tells us the playing field. He says, where are we going to demonstrate that we've put these qualities on? And number one, we need to display them for sure when we bear with other people. That's a neat Greek word translated as forbearance. It literally means putting up with other people. How are we going to put up with other people's faults? How are we going to put up with others' idiosyncrasies? I heard a neat story about a couple from the country. They were a young, newly married couple, and they were country folks. And they got referred to a counselor in the big city. And so they went in to the counselor, and the counselor didn't know them, and they didn't know the counselor. And so the counselor asked the question, what are your grounds for counseling? 
And the old boy answered. He said, our grounds? Well, we got a couple acres right outside of town. It's really nice. Got a nice little home. Got a barn. Got a stream running through the property. The counselor was like, okay, I got to try something else. Well, what's the foundation? What's the, what's the foundation for wanting to come? And the old boy said, well, I would assume it's mortar and brick. <laughs> Maybe some rebar, some concrete. I don't know. And she's like, no, no. You're not tracking with me, are you? She said, tell me about your relations. He said, well, all my family still lives in, in town. You know? Now, my wife's family, they live in the next town over. Is that? No, that's not it. The counselor said, do you have a grudge against one another? And the guy said, grudge? No, we don't have a grudge. We got a carport. We don't really need a grudge because we got the barn. <laughs> and the counselor is starting to lose patience. And so the counselor asked the man, does she beat you up? And the man thought about this one for a second, and he responded. And he said, well, Yes. Not on the weekdays. I wake up before her, but she beats me up on the weekends because I try. I like to sleep in on the weekends, right? And finally, she's really exasperated. And the counselor said, why are you here? Why did you come for counseling? The man said, honestly, I don't know, but she says I have trouble communicating, which I, which I can see. <laughs> Do we know people that are hard to put up with, people that are hard to bear with? They're difficult people. Hopefully not as confusing as this guy in the counseling office. But, but, but are some people hard to love? What does the passage say? If we want to invest in relationship, we are to bear with them. We're going to show them our compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. For sure we do that as we bear with people, but also, number two, as we forgive people. We'll end with this one today. But, but this, honestly, I think is the toughest instruction here. Rather than holding a garage, against, I mean a grudge against someone, rather than becoming bitter or resentful, we're supposed to forgive the people who do us wrong. Now, this is a big takeaway here. Because we can't say, well, gosh, I'd be so much easier. I'd forgive people if they'd just treat me better. <laughs> because if people treated us better, we wouldn't need compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, right? This one's tough because we're supposed to forgive how. What does the text say? just as the Lord forgave us. Now listen, we started out by saying that compassion comes from our bowels. It comes from our hearts. That means it's an emotion. It's a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an action. Forgiveness is a decision that we make where we choose to bear a burden. We choose to absorb whatever wrong action was committed against us. We choose to think of others before ourselves. And that may sound almost impossible, but again, we know that it's not because we know nothing is impossible with God. God's forgiveness involves undeserved favor. Sinful people in this fallen world, we don't deserve God's forgiveness, but he gives it anyway. And that's the model for us if we're going to invest in healthy relationships. And please, let, let me just throw this in. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that we're willing to just forget everything. We don't forget the wrong they've committed. Truly, we don't have the ability to do that the way Jesus does. So if we're going to practice this difficult act, we can do that on our own. We can choose to forgive someone. But that doesn't mean that we're just blindly going to automatically trust that person, right? Because trust is very much a two-way street. Trust has to be earned. Trust is a process that does involve two people. Forgiveness can occur with one person. There's a great old story about Thomas Edison. I pray it's true. The, the inventor of so many things, but probably most famously the inventor of the light bulb. 
And the story goes that Edison and his team, he had this great team that worked together for years, went through a lot of stuff, developed prototypes for the light bulb, and finally they, they were going to do it, right? They're going to build the first light bulb. And it took them a day. It literally took them 24 hours to build this light bulb, this team of folks. And so Edison gives the light bulb to a person who's supposed to carry it to the test site where they're going to conduct electricity through whatever, and the old boy drops it. <laughs> he dro I pray this story is true because if it is, it's so good. He drops it and he breaks it. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh. And, and what do they do? They immediately jump in and they start again. And they take another 24 hours with this team of folks and they create the second light bulb. And Thomas Edison gives it to this exact same guy <laughs> who dropped the first one. Because did he make a mistake? Yeah, sure he did. And Edison forgave him. But this was a guy who'd been on his team for a long time. He'd had relationship with him. He trusted him, even in spite of that mistake. Can we do something like that? Can we offer forgiveness that can lead to trust? Remember, the trust has to be earned. But we can start the process by forgiving those who've wronged us. And when we do that, then we don't let bitterness take root damage our relationships. Relationships are the application for today. That's our purpose here at OCC. We want to see people connected. We want them to have thriving relationships. So Paul tells the church at Colossae, God tells us that he graciously chose us. We're holy and beloved. We're set apart as his followers so we can treat one another with these attributes, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and we do that as we put up with one another. Thank you guys for putting up with me. We do that as we bear with one another, as we forgive one another. So let me close with a real practical question. How do we start? If we're hearing this sermon today and we don't feel like we're doing this well, how can we grow? Well, first and foremost, for sure, we've got to have our vertical relationship with God right. None of this is going to happen without professing faith in him. None of it's possible. But once we've secured that relationship, it's all possible. And now we need to go out and practice our horizontal relationships. We need to invest in some one another's. There's information out at the bulletin uh, or at the info counter today. You can sign up to be on teams. You can join a rooted study. You can find a place to serve. There's lots of places to invest in these relationships. And to do it, maybe we should commit this passage to memory. We should challenge ourselves every day to put off Lying and slander and greed and pride and evil thoughts. Why? So that we can put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience as we go out and bear with one another and forgive one another as Christ forgave us. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, I sure do love you. Let's pray. Father God, thanks. Thanks for this challenge from your word. Thanks for the opportunity we'll have to go out and practice these things. God, we don't want to be, as James says, just hearers of your word. We want to be doers of your word. And this is, is a litmus test. This is a prescription for how we can invest in relationships. God, help us to do this in a way where you get all the glory. Help us to, to not only know what our purpose and mission and vision are here at OCC, but to embrace them, to invest in relationships, to, to be in that process of making disciples who make disciples so that we can literally see ourselves joining you in this transforming work that you're doing here in the valley in this world. God, we are in awe of you. We love you so much. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.